Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and this is our next episode. Jeff Madoff and I are creating a broad look at everything and anything, but in this particular case, we're looking at a very special something. So just want to say, if some of you haven't heard before, that Jeff, after putting in 70 years of developing his skills in other areas of life, decided to write and produce a Broadway musical, which is Personality, and it's on the life and the impact of a wonderful pioneer in the rock and roll world, Lloyd Price, in the early 1950s. A week ago, exactly a week ago, you had the premiere in a very special off-Broadway theater outside Philadelphia. You've had the whole week. You've had reviews. You've seen it for yourself. So what's the story? <laughs> well, first of all, you know, it's really been interesting because throughout our podcasting, the anything and everything, we certainly live up to that name. You know, you've been kind enough to sort of build a timeline that I can look back on years from now, which is sort of interesting to me. We were starting to talk before we began recording. I was asked, well, aren't you nervous? This is on Sunday, March 13th, which is when the show premiered. And I wanted to say, actually, let me preempt myself here. One of the things that was really interesting is our very first day of rehearsal was February 8th. And that's my birthday. And our very first performance in front of a live paying audience, and that was for previews, was March 9th, which is Lloyd's birthday. Five weeks, essentially. Yeah, and it's just, you know, that was total coincidence. That was not by design. And I'm not a big believer in omens or anything, but that was just a cool coincidence that I thought was really wonderful. And you and Babs and some of your other members are going to be seeing it on Tuesday. So I'm mm -hmm. thrilled about that. So you will finally see this. Mm -hmm. Babs and I, you invited us to New York when they were at the workshop stage. For those of you who are not theater people, especially New York theater people, workshops are where you have about 72 hours to put on the performance maximum of twice, I think. You can put it on in 72 hours. And the actors know their lines. The musicians are there. They play the music. The dancing is there. You just don't have costumes. And the audience is very restricted to probably the news media, the entertainment news media, and to investors, and I think to other people who are theater owners who are looking for potential performances in the future. Is that correct? Almost. The first thing we did, which you had read the script for, actually, was the 29-hour. That's an actor's equity designation. Yeah. And then what you came to was the workshop, which we had about close to two weeks of rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And then we did two performances. And there are no sets, as you said, no props, no costumes, no lighting cues or anything like that. But it is the complete performance. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. Including all the music, and there is choreography in it. Mm -hmm. What we are in process of now at People's Light is a full-up production. This is everything. Sets, lights, sound, projections, choreography, band, every aspect. This is a full-up show. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's kind of a special deal that a lot of new productions don't get the advantage of just by the nature of the theater that you're actually were able to open up at. Yeah, we're at People's Light Theater, 
It's a regional theater. It's in Malvern, Pennsylvania. It's been around about 46 years, very respected. We were able to work out a deal with them and they have their own set shop. They have their own costume shop. So our set designers work with their people. Our costume designers work with their people. We got a special deal with a new kind of sound system. It's the only one in the United States, as a matter of fact, because our our sound designer is a Tony Award winner, and he convinced them to rent us the system where you can target any part of the room to have the sound originate from. So there's an old radio on stage, and you begin to hear the music coming out of the old radio, mm-hmm. and then it's sort of mixed into the live performance. And it's all live. It's just that he can do this all on the fly program. So it's incredible. And you'll see, I don't want to actually give anything away since you and Babs are going to be seeing it next week, but this immersive sound design is really cool. And we're fortunate that our sound designer is not only aware of it, knows how to use it. And because of his credentials, that company that made it was willing to rent it to us, which yeah. is fabulous. Yeah. You know, we were the first production of the new year for People's Light. And they, like all other theaters, were hit really hard with COVID and basically shutting down. And it's one of the things that's very much entrepreneurial is they adapted mm-hmm. to situations. So they staged outdoor concerts. They did online salons with writers and actors. And I participated in two of their online salons and talked about the play and the story. And they were really smart about basically how they kept people involved and engaged in theater. And driving around Malvern, and this was a first for me, not only a first driving around Malvern, (laughs) never done that either. (laughs) There was a billboard. So we stopped the car and I got out and pointed to the billboard and took a picture you know, billboard with personality and, you know, with my name on it. And I thought, oh, that's cool. You know, I thought I had to become a personal injury lawyer to get a billboard, (laughs) you know, (laughs) that or a tax accountant. I think those are the only ones who do billboards anymore. Before we get into the features, and there are many to talk about, including the reviews that you've received, let's take it back to the beginning because this wasn't in your mind when the project developed for you to do essentially a documentary film on Lloyd Price and talk us back to what you thought about that. Uh, You know, I mean, was it someone well known to you? Was it someone that you said, finally, somebody's going to do something on Lloyd Price? Or did this just develop as a result of your relationship with Lloyd? Well, what happened was, you know, where so many ideas are germinated in the waiting room of a doctor's office. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a guy that I had become friends with, John Banani, was the executive producer for Radio City. And I did a film about the 75th anniversary of Radio City, which became part of the Christmas Spectacular for a number of years. John left there. His roots were in theater. He wanted to get back to theater. And he met Lloyd in the waiting area of, they both went to the same eye doctor. (laughs) So John had proposed the idea of doing a short documentary about Lloyd to kind of reintroduce him and to do something with that. And he said, I think there's something here for you, but I'd love you to do the documentary. Would you meet with me and Lloyd? I did. And you met him, Dan. I mean, he's an incredibly charismatic guy. Yeah. 
a thousand watt smile, really engaging. And so when I got the job to do this, I'm still with all his marbles too. Totally, totally. And, you know, when I got the job to do the documentary and I researched him and then interviewed him for a number of hours, I thought, wow, there's an amazing story here. I don't know. I knew his music, I knew personality and Sagar Lee and Lottie Miss Lottie, but I didn't know anything about him, anything about the obstacles he was up against or anything like that. And I'm really into music. And I figured if I didn't know, there's an awful lot of people that don't know. And, you know, I believe that you can't second guess audiences. And what I mean by that is when I was so attracted to Lloyd's story, I felt other people would be attracted to it. And if I could do it justice and tell the story well, then, you know, that could create a very deserved legacy for him that he didn't have and show his impact on popular culture. And so mm-hmm. that didn't happen till after I did the documentary and really did my due diligence yeah. about Lloyd. Yeah. So I wrote the first few scenes and read them to him. He loved them. Mm-hmm. And I said, I know I can capture your voice. I want to tell your story. Mm-hmm. And that's how that started. So we're in history taking us back how many years at that juncture that you're just talking about? I think we're talking about eight, nine years. Wow. Wow. I think that is it. You know, I'm, it's a little hazy where the documentary started and then this began because it was after the documentary. But yeah, I, think- I think you started talking to me about five years ago about where you were with, I mean, when you had crossed over and you were now in the project of developing the script. Yeah, well, you know, it's so crazy, Dan, because when you and Babs came in for the workshop, that was three years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, and the year before that was that 29 hour. And I think we started talking. I probably let you know about this maybe a year or so before that. So you're right. Five or six years is how long you've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, it's, I think Hamilton took nine or 10 years to get to the stage. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, another thing that, you know, relates to entrepreneurship on this is that, you know, you've got to be, committed fully well it's a love affair with the future too i mean really and that's true regardless of what the entrepreneurial project is that you sense something and you visualize something in the future that's so intense that you're almost experiencing it in completed form right now yeah i love that phrase love affair with the future that's great because you're right because you're thinking about outcome and then the question is how do you draw that map to get there Mm mm-hmm But, you know, I also, you know, when I was speaking to entrepreneurial groups and things like that, the misconception about, well, you own your own business and, you know, so your time is your own and all that. Mm, Not for the first many years of your business. That's not the case. I'm sure it wasn't the case with you either, as well as you've constructed things. It took a while for you to get your business as such that you didn't have to devote 24-7 to it. Well, one of the important skills of being an entrepreneur once you become successful is to tell a better story about your past than you actually played. (laughs) You know, I saw the potential of this and I was dead on and, you know, and I said, yeah, maybe. Yeah, Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Such a burden to always be right. (laughs) Yeah. And I talked to you about this following the workshops. You know, I mean. His story is the story of 
it's the story of blacks in America, especially coming, you know, past mid-century in the 20th century. But actually, black musicians who had an incredible culture of their own, they had an amazing culture of their own, that was totally unknown to the rest of the world for the most part. That's right. And the crossover impact of Lloyd Price was that he was the first of the rock and roll entertainers who acquired a national white teenage audience. That's right. And that's what was so unique. And that got him drafted and sent to Korea. <laughs> <laughs> and you're right. That is yeah. correct. Yeah. Senator Richard Russell from Georgia, who was head of the Armed Services Committee, you bet. basically put out the dictate that Lloyd should be drafted. Yeah, He thought that would stop race mixing. Yeah. Miscegenation might break out like a virus. <laughs> yeah. And let's see if he can develop a North Korean audience. <laughs> You know, I mean, the incredible thing about this, this was in our lifetime, that there were the separate drinking fountains, separate bathrooms. You know, this wasn't like we're studying something from a few hundred years ago. That really struck me. And there's a scene in the play, and, you know, I kind of wondered what happened. Lloyd worked at the airport, you know, he worked at the diner and he cleaned out the planes. This was in New Orleans, by the way. In Kenner which is the airport for New Orleans. Yeah, which is outside of New Orleans, the nearby suburb. 14 miles away, and until Lloyd recorded Lottie Miss Claudia at Cosmo Matassa Studio in New Orleans, Lloyd had never been there. That was a land far, far away. He had never been to New Orleans. That's how small his world was. Yeah. At that point, he was 17. Yeah. And he'd never been 14 miles away from home. Yeah, and they had to pick up any talent they could for it, so he had to get this guy named Fats Domino to actually play the piano. That's right. And Fats Domino was as unknown as Lloyd was in those days. Well, he played, Fats is a little bit older, and he you know, played some clubs there, and he's from New Orleans. Yeah. Interestingly, he was not the first piano player that Dave Bartholomew chose, and Dave produced... Fats Domino's first big hit, which was They Call Me the Fat Man. Mm-hmm. And that's where Art Rupon's specialty that recorded Lloyd said, there's a market here that's totally being ignored. Yep. And I think we can do something. Because, you know, at that time, all the major record labels, they did classical, they did opera, but they didn't do jazz, they didn't do blues. No, mostly Broadway. They did Broadway musicals. Yeah, show tunes, right. Show, show tunes, yeah. American songbook, a lot of American songbook stuff that was there. Yeah, and, and so they wanted experienced musicians, you know, trained musicians. And Art Roops saw that when he went to listen to gospel, because he lived near a gospel church, it all happened by accident. And he went in there and he was so captivated by that music And it wasn't because these were technically great musicians. It's because they tapped into emotion. And that moved people and got people standing up and moving. And he saw an opportunity there. And he loved the music and what that emotion did. He's still living, by the way. He's 104. Mm -hmm. And Art Roop is still alive. Lloyd died. It'll be a year this May that he died. But when Art turned 100, I said to Lloyd, because I had noticed it, that Art Roop's birthday is tomorrow, Lloyd. He's going to be 100 years old. He goes, yeah, yeah, I know that. I was wondering whether I should give him a call. And I said, 
well, what are you going to wait for? <laughs> <You> know, I mean, <laughs> astoundingly, he outlived Lloyd, mm -hmm. but Lloyd did call him and he said they had a great conversation. Yeah. Which was cool. For the listeners, Jeff and I have a connection that we're both from Northern Ohio and I'm west of Cleveland and you're sort of south, I guess. Akron is south and a little bit to the east of Cleveland. And rock and roll as an official genre actually was coined in Cleveland by Alan Freed, DJ, who later got so famous that he got to enjoy it in prison. But what he did was that there was this new kind of music that was on the scene. It was coming to Cleveland. There was a concert. And he said, like, you all come out and listen to these people. And we're all going to go and we're going to rock and roll. And that was the first time that the term rock and roll was actually broadcast. And it became instantly viral rock and roll. But that was the first rock and roll concert in history. And Alan Freed was involved, you know, you alluded to prison, in the payola scandals. Yeah. And for those who don't know what payola was, it's basically where record promoters and labels would pay DJs, which is what Alan Freed was, yeah. pay DJs to get their records played, Yeah, you know, on the air. It's basically what is standard operating procedure today that was <laughs> illegal right. 70 years ago. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. Well... Later in life, when Alan went through that, he and Lloyd were friends. So Lloyd gave him office space on 57th Street in New York. So Alan operated out of there for a while. Boy, what a... No, the history is crazy. And the interconnections, you know. No, it is. So the thing was that three years ago, I think it was in April or May, I'm not quite sure of the month, uh, Babs and I came and we saw... March. March. So... Almost crazy. to the year, by the way. I mean, literally. It's almost to the day. Yeah. So first of all, we felt very privileged to be invited. So we went twice. We went on a Wednesday night and a Thursday afternoon. And there were really great receptions afterwards. And it was kind of like a workshop theater in New York. I mean, theater is such a huge industry in New York that there are specialized theaters where various stages of plays can actually be put together. But on the Thursday night, I was able to spend about 20 minutes with Lloyd at the reception. And we found out that we had been both drafted. He was drafted for the Korean War. I was drafted for the Vietnam War. And we were both sent to South Korea. And we were actually in the same unit. And we had a good time. The only difference was it was full out war when Lloyd went. And it was kind of dicey because there's never been a peace agreement there. It's a ceasefire basically in there. Periodically, we would have alerts and, you know, we all had to act as if we were soldiers. But it was really, really interesting. And I'll bring this subject up later because the way you've written the script, Jeff, the way you end the play is a remarkably healing communication. Okay. And, you know, first of all, it's very powerful the way that you've portrayed it, but it's very powerful in the fact that it totally represents what Lloyd's attitude was. Well, you know, it's interesting because actually this is your phrase, which I have used a number of times, which was Lloyd never allowed himself to be a victim. Yeah. And when you talk about 
entrepreneurship, there's two key words. One is persistence and the other is adaptability. You know, and if you are lacking those, you're going to run into more obstacles to overcome. Yeah. And he overcame those obstacles of race and racism and where, yeah. you know. Well, and just the hard knocks of life. That's right. You know, there's the special oppression that was reserved for, you know, people with the wrong skin color and the, the wrong heritage. But just being a musician and just being an entrepreneur and everything has its own special knocks. And I just got the amazing feeling that this person just has no angst whatsoever about what he went through. Yeah, I would say that's mostly true. And, you know, it wasn't until we had a deep trust established that he revealed more. Yeah. You know, but you are correct. And the interesting and telling thing is I met people that played with Lloyd, you know, were in his band 60 years ago. They have nothing but good things to say about him. You know, and it's really cool because he always made sure his musicians got paid, you know, as soon as he got paid. He respected other people. He was fun to work with. And so when I helped him put together a band, the first time he had played in New York in 30 some years, and I helped him put together that band. It was funny. We went to hear some music and I wanted him to hear this band. He said, oh God, they're great. He said, you know, I get asked to do these concerts all the time, but I don't want to do any of that oldie stuff. (laughs) By the way, he was like 81 when he said that. Mm -hmm. He said, I don't want to play that. But if I had a band like this, I would do a gig here. I said, okay. And he didn't know that I was friends with a few of the band members. Yeah. And I got him that band. And so I uh, helped him produce. Well, it's like Frankie Valley when he saw the dress rehearsal for the Jersey Boys. First of all, he said, I loved it. But he said, we were never that good. <laughs> you know, like, you know, he said, I appreciate it. And everybody's putting the spotlight on me. And he said, but I have to tell you, the quality of our music and the quality of our productions was never as good as what you've put together, Harry. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is that Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons created this stuff. Okay. And Lloyd created this stuff. And there's a right. difference between creating this stuff and what somebody else with great technology and a great audition system that delivers, you know, amazing talent in that. But they're simply reproducing what someone else created. Yeah. And that's a great point. My sense about this is what the personality your play is it's a co production, it's a co creation. Because you took what Lloyd created, but you actually put it in a completely different form and delivered it to an entirely different kind of stage than what he put through. So I see what you've done as equally creative. Yeah. It's funny when you mentioned what Frankie Valley said. Lloyd was saying to me, what's most important to me is the music's got to sound right. You know, the music's got to be right. And, you know, he worked with Don Costa as he got more successful, which is Frank Sinatra's arranger. He worked with the top talent there was. So I said, okay, well, our musical director, Shelton Beckton, has been playing professionally since he was four. And he's astounding. And he surrounds himself with all A-plus level musicians. But he's got to get the beat right. He's got to get that sound right. So I took Lloyd to one of the rehearsals. This was for the workshop. 
And so he's listening to Shelton. And he turns to me and said, I didn't know my shit sounded that good. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. He said, that's pretty good. I've never sounded that good when I was in the recording studio. <laughs> yeah, you know, so it was pretty cool. Yeah. But, you know, they also had to get in and out like that. Well, you know? I was amazed because they're set musicians. One of the things, you know, this is just a sidebar for what we're talking about, the main thing. But I was sitting there and I was feeling that you really understand the power of a place like Broadway. New York has a number of things like this as a city. You know, they have the fashion industry, they have the advertising industry, they have the financial industry. But you realize the power of critical mass of talent when you're in a place like that. And I was just sitting there and I was saying, you know, these individuals, they're the one out of 999 who got there. There were 999 who, for any of them, whether you're talking about the actors or the musicians, eventually all the different talent that you assembled. And we'll talk about that because you got an unusual quirk of history to assemble probably one of the finest wraparound talent teams for a brand new play that, I mean, for an unknown producer and an unknown writer to develop this talent. But I was sitting there and I was talking to Babs and I said, you know, you really appreciate just the amazing critical mass of talent that must be within five miles of the theater that we're sitting here. And it's these individuals are the ones who show up today. You know, and that's New York City. You're right. And, you know, it's the, the, from the song, New York, New York, you know, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. Because there's certainly a lot of things that make it really difficult. It's amazing plays get mounted at all on Broadway. The cost involved. And, you know, there's only 41 Broadway theaters. Now, we hope to occupy one of those in the not too distant future. But of those 41, 20 of them are solidly booked all the time because it'll have something like Book of Mormon, Hamilton, Chicago, Wicked that are sort of perennials. Yeah. And so when you think about how few slots there are and all the talent vying for those slots, you can't think about it too much because it's just too daunting if you think about that, you know? It's like aiming for the moon from Earth, you know, (laughs) any calculation, you're going to miss it by thousands of miles. And it's kind of like that. So, yeah, there is an amazing concentration of talent here. So, Jeff, bring us up to date. In the last seven days, what's happened? One, that you kind of knew when you started the project, you kind of knew it could show up this way. So I'd like you to talk about that, but I'd also like to talk about above and beyond your expectations, what has happened that is to you really quite amazing. You know, I'm still processing it, Dan. As we were heading to our first shows in front of an audience, which are called previews, where there's still changes that can take place. You know, when I was asked, are you nervous? Are you concerned? And I said, you know, aren't you excited? And the thing is, I was still so much in the weeds of the writing and then turning that writing over. And then you want to lock the show, which means no more changes for the performance before the opening. So the actors at least have one run through before you have your opening night. 
And our previews are all in front of paying audience. So I was working up until, essentially up until opening. Then at the opening, as I'm saying hello to people, I was getting, aren't you nervous now? And I said, actually, no. They said, you're not nervous? I'd be going crazy. And I said, you know, I trust the material. I trust the talent. And now all I can do is hope that I've bridged the gap between my intention as the writer and the impact. I have a fantastic director who captained the ship through the whole thing. Fantastic musical director, fantastic talent, as you mentioned, all around. And so there's nothing else I could do. So I was just hoping it would be an enjoyable experience, but I wasn't nervous or concerned because there's nothing I can do anymore. Mm -hmm. So I was able to sit back and watch the show. And the coolest sensation that I get is when I forgot that I wrote it because the actors have taken such ownership of it that they're no longer performing, they're behaving. And to me, great acting is behaving. You're not performing. You know, you've closed that gap between you, the actor, and the character, and they become one. Garrett Gunderson, who I think you know, came in for one of the previews. And we were talking, he said, I know it was an actor playing Logan, but I thought that was Logan because I couldn't imagine anybody else playing him. And Stanley Mathis, who was so marvelous, has been with us since the beginning. And, you know, we had a new Lloyd Price, St. Aubin, and a new young Lloyd, Nathaniel Washington. You know, observing their processes, all three very different, was really fascinating. So I've been learning a tremendous amount. Fortunately, the audience response has been off the charts positive. The critical responses, which I shared with you, a couple of them, has been off the charts. My director wrote to me after the first review and he said, are you related to the critic? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, my mom died 12 years ago, but I wouldn't put it past her to have somehow influenced it. <laughs> and then the next review came out and I said to Sheldon, did your mother write this one? <laughs> you know, <laughs> so we're very fortunate, the response and the audience. And this is something that you tagged when you saw the workshop. People are so upbeat. And although the story deals with some serious issues, it's also very entertaining. And the music is so much fun yeah. that people leave uplifted mm -hmm. and uplifted in a way that I feel really good about because they've also been educated because the most common response I get is, God, I didn't know that. Yeah. You know, and that's that's really cool. So it's an amazing journey. I look at this as just another step in it. Yeah. I do hope we take it all the way. You know, I told you I'm a great believer in fairy dust. And I think you've had special help, <laughs> you know, because I think the story itself attracts support. You know, it's a story that attracts an audience. And just to wrap up and relate that at the end, I don't have the exact words, but what I remember Lloyd's character saying, and somebody said about them that you were a black soldier in Korea. And he said, I wasn't a black soldier in Korea. I was an American soldier in Korea. He said, I represented the United States of America. You know, one is if it wasn't true to character, it would be artificial, it would be false. But everything about that statement was totally consistent with who Lloyd was and how you presented Lloyd. 
Well, Lloyd said that I served in Korea as an American soldier, not as a black man. He said, I pay American taxes. My dreams and what I know is an American story. You know, it's really fascinating because I think it's hard for most people who didn't experience, which most people didn't experience, the kind of life and obstacles that he had and had to confront to maintain such an amazingly positive attitude that was not Pollyanna, but to maintain that positive attitude and go through life the way he did is pretty astounding. Mm -hmm. You know, that's why I think his story is so important to tell because as Lloyd says in real life and as I memorialized in the play, music can bring people together. And what's interesting to me about race, and this is a bigger discussion, but when those things become normal, you know, so you're seeing a TV commercial for, I think it's for some mop or Swift or something, and it's a biracial couple and there's nothing made of it, you know, has to do the Swifter for his wife, you know, in the cleaning the living room. You know, when you start seeing these things that were considered social aberrations, Mm-hmm. now so normalized mm-hmm. and people grow up seeing that because you know as Lloyd said who did we have to look at step and fetch it you know I mean who was there to look at that gave a positive notion of what you could be and there's a scene in the play where you know Manora who's this woman who helps him get rid of his headaches says that these people don't have any dreams and he said what do you mean why don't they he said because they don't think they have a future And there was nothing that indicated future as a possibility. And Lloyd's father used to say, we're black, and that's that. That's the way it is. That's the way it's always going to be. And I hope that the play gives more of an insight into the kind of character that it takes, but also into the kind of positive values that that puts out there, as you said. And I think that that's if this does anything to promote some sense of unity and open people's eyes a bit, Mm -hmm. I will be incredibly grateful if it has that. Aside from entertaining people, which is of course the goal for people to buy tickets, they got to leave feeling entertained. But if it also takes them a little bit further and there's discussions like you and I have had, that would be very gratifying if it also educates a bit. Yeah, and I I just wanted to say you made a statement about great music bringing people together, but great stories bring people together, too. And my sense is total kudos to you for presenting such a great story that attracted so much talent as we go forward. And the other thing is I just wanted to thank you for letting Babs and I have a sort of an inside journey with you on creating this. And I'm going to get this out to all strategic coach clients this particular episode. And I'm sure that they will be seeing personality either real soon or as it makes its way across America and probably to London. Well, thank you very much. And your support has meant a tremendous amount. It's been great. So thank you very much for saying that. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today on our show, Anything and Everything. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend. For more about me and my work, visit acreativecareer.com and madoffproductions.com. To learn more about Dan and Strategic Coach, visit strategiccoach.com.